0: Hey guys, and welcome to episode 24 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking everything comp So nutrition, training, psychological aspects, and we've had some great listener questions this week. As per usual, you're joined by myself, Jack, and Tiara, and we'll dive straight into the questions.
1: Sweet. All right. So the first question was asked by Joel, and he said, I'm thinking about competing next year but I don't know if I'm ready. How do you know if you're ready for a comp prep? So I think this is a really good question to start off with. How do you know when you're ready?
0: Yeah. So there's almost like a criteria that we can establish and tick off some boxes. Uh, it won't be the same for everyone, but just uh, looking at that criteria will give you a good indication of how you're fare and Whether, yeah, you have too much stuff going on, basically, so...
1: So, I think the top two would definitely be body composition and your mentality.
0: So, in terms of body composition, there are a few factors we can look at. And for our explanations, I guess we're looking at individuals or competitors who want to actually be competitive on stage.
1: Yeah, because we fully acknowledge some people, you know, they compete as a challenge to themselves... But yeah, certainly I think the way we're approaching this question is that you are training and you are competing to win.
0: So the first thing we can bring up is basically how long you've been training for. And you do want a good amount of training experience and training years before you compete just to have a solid amount of muscle foundation and muscle density as well. So the longer you train as well, I guess there's a agreement that you have a higher amount of muscularity density as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's the great thing about bodybuilding because the best bodybuilders usually peak in like their late 40s because they just have that muscle maturity.
0: Mm. So obviously, if you don't have enough training experience, you might not have the muscle, adequate muscle mass to get up and stage and look the part really. And another aspect of body composition is also body fat and your starting point for a prep as well. So, obviously, if you're starting your prep 15, 20 weeks out at 30, 40% body fat, then even like, yeah, even 30% body fat is probably not giving yourself enough time and you probably haven't prepared adequately.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, in that case, you want to pick, you really want to plan out your prep. You know, bodybuilding is a marathon sport, so you should be able to pick your show a good year or more out And in that time, you know, you're going through your improvement season and then you would be planning for what's called a mini cut or running a cut essentially for a period of anywhere six to eight weeks where you drop a good amount of body fat while trying to your absolute best to retain your muscle mass. Then you'll go into a slight period of either maintenance or small amount of gaining. And then you will enter a comp prep, which Jack and I highly recommend anywhere between 20 to 30 weeks long sometimes. So giving yourself a really good amount of time. And for males, if you were to go off body fat percentages, starting out at around 15% body fat, and then for females, anywhere probably 15 to 20% body
0: fat. Mm. So some other factors we can look at that are more related to nutrition and food. So for starters, how much are you eating in your off season? So if you've competed only one season ago, so that's about half a year or up to a year ago, you your food still might not be that high, especially for females. So you, if you're eating below 2000 calories per day, then I'm a bit skeptical of whether you'll have enough basically food to lose throughout the prep. Um, and it might get very uncomfortable and not very productive as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. So during your improvement season, you really want to try to build your calories up and build up your metabolic rate, so that you can consume more and burn off more energy and also maintain a body weight while consuming more calories. Because then when you start your cut, you'll be able to diet on more food, which is always optimal because that's really going to help with diet adherence and sustainability.
0: The other aspect of food as well as your mentality surrounding nutrition and how food focused are you? Because I think everyone who's competed before knows how food focused you get and all you think about is food when your next meal is. You're basically watching the clock and do it, starting a prep in that state of mind definitely isn't going to be beneficial because it'll just the level of obsession will just increase.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's about having that perfect balance between you are aware of what you're eating, but at the same time, food doesn't control your life. So I guess in simple terms, we can just say that you have a healthy relationship with food. You're not looking at certain foods as good and bad. You are certainly adherent to hitting your macronutrient and your calorie targets. But at the same time, especially if you're in your improvement season, if you slightly deviate away from those, you know, you don't beat yourself up about it. You just get right back on track and you move on with life. So having a healthy relationship with food is absolutely integral.
0: So the next important aspect in nutrition is also just having a decent foundation and knowledge of macronutrients and tracking these macronutrients as well Because yeah going into a contest preparation without having that foundation uh, It'll just not be as productive.
1: Yeah, exactly. So knowing which foods contain predominantly Carbohydrates protein fats. I think it's very important to be you know experienced with accurately weighing food and scanning barcodes and just Accurately tracking your intake so that when you have a coach, or if you're coaching yourself and you have specific targets, and when you are in a competition prep and you're trying to hit those targets within a plus or minus two gram range to be as accurate as possible, that you can do that because then you will get the best results possible and you will stay on track.
0: Mm, Especially if you're going from like a A typical diet where you basically don't track anything you just eat normally which of course is completely fine and it's that's healthy as well and it's probably normal more normal than tracking your food but then if you have to go to a high carbohydrate moderately high protein low fat dietary approach it's actually quite difficult to completely change all your food types around and then predominantly eat that macronutrient split And that's where just looking for support services, so coaches and other individuals who can help you is important, so don't be afraid to do that as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's super important, and also just planning ahead your prep in advance, and for when you actually plan to compete, try your best to make sure it's at a time in your life where stress will be minimal or if you know that you are going to be in a highly stressful situation. For example, Jack and I did do our first contest preparation during our very first semester of a master's degree, which was very stressful and full on. But we took that head on because we knew anecdotally that we could handle things like that because all throughout our previous university semesters, Jack and I were still training five to six days a week. We were still tracking our food every single day, you know, and even when life stresses came up, like exams or long work shifts and PT clients and other things like that, we knew that we were resilient and we knew that we were able to handle it and manage our time and fit that in. So I just say, try your absolute best to plan your prep in advance for a time where you know that you can fully commit and other things won't get in the way, or if they do, that you got this and you can handle it.
0: Yeah. Another aspect of this as well is just your social situation and like, is your family and friends going to be accepting of this? Will they support you? And yeah, pretty much. And what about your work environment? Is, is your colleagues going to be okay with this? And yeah, is your partner especially going to be okay with this? Will you be able to support them as well as yourself throughout this period? etc and the final point as well that we wanted to touch on is your finances so obviously especially if you have a coach plus entering all your divisions buying your tan buying your your posing trunks
1: yeah bikinis getting your hair done getting your makeup done buying heels getting posing coaching Honestly, guys, bodybuilding is an expensive sport and one season alone, like no joke, will cost you quite a few thousand dollars. So you definitely do need to be in a good financial state, Uh, but it's worth every penny and it's so goddamn fun.
0: Mm, 100%. So yeah, and Tiara and I are offering coaching services for season A and of course, all seasons after that right now. So we do like to conduct a wholesome approach with all of our clients and cover all of these bases, and make sure everything, everyone is 100% prepared to tackle all aspects of the prep so yeah
1: exactly putting people in the best position possible by starting early and start working with a coach during your improvement season so that you can get up on there and stage and just shine and absolutely showcase your best so we love to help our clients through you know every single aspect of prep and support them and educate them so yeah we certainly are taking on clients now for their improvement seasons and future seasons to come
0: So moving on to the next question. So water slash sodium timing, also diuretic breakdowns, in brackets, potassium sparing, loop, etc.
1: Whoa, okay. (laughs) Where do you want to start with this?
0: (laughs) So I guess we'll start with just the water and sodium timing, timing, and we'll approach this towards a just in general, and also guess peak week as well. Mm -hmm. So just in general, obviously having an adequate amount of water is important. Uh, The majority of your body is made up of water.
1: Especially your muscle bellies. You know, muscles are predominantly like 70% water.
0: Mm. So obviously water is important, consuming at least two liters a day, if not more. And that's not just water. Obviously any fluid that you consume will be beneficial, but taking into consideration the energy content and the other other additives of different drinks, et cetera. So you don't want to be consuming diet cola as your primary hydration source and not consuming any water.
1: So really? Why not? <laughs> um, and then, so water, yeah, so water essentially Guys, the golden rule really is just drink to thirst, drink when you're thirsty, but also if I guess you're one of those people who don't get thirsty, like Jack said, just aim for a minimum two liters per day. And yeah, the easy ways to do this is just try to have a big glass of water with every meal or carry around a water bottle with you throughout the day and just set a goal to fill it up like four or five times or something. So what about sodium timing? Is there a magical timing? I should be taking my salt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Just staying. I guess the key here is not to have too little sodium, especially for people who are hypotensive. So if you have lower blood pressure, then not having enough sodium or basically if you have low blood pressure, then having adequate sodium will be helpful with that, especially for training. Yeah, yeah,
1: sodium is super important for athletes, guys, and unfortunately, I think there's a bad stigma around sodium in you know society because uh, I guess you could say the Australian Dietary Guidelines they kind of set this cap of 2,000 milligrams of sodium per day, and um, they say that a lot of people exceed that, which they do because they are consuming highly processed, high energy dense. Uh, Lonely nutritious foods. But for athletes, sodium is so goddamn important because athletes sweat a lot. So they're losing a lot of sodium through their sweat. Um, You lose sodium through urine as well. Sodium is so important for nutrient transportation. So actually getting glucose from your intestines into your bloodstream. It's so important for muscle contraction as well. So athletes are really advised to add extra salt to their foods, you know? And also Jack and I have anecdotally experienced really good pumps to say the least when we take about a half teaspoon of salt right before our workouts.
0: Yeah, especially if you're like me and don't add much salt to your meals throughout the day then and you don't eat much foods with added salt either. So for example, packaged goods, then definitely having salt before your training is... I'd recommend trying it
1: yeah and exactly and your body adapts as well if you consume too much sodium then your body just gets used to excreting more sodium through the urine so I guess there's there's nothing necessarily about sodium or water timing just drink normally drink to thirst and salt your meals but I guess in regards to let's talk about a peak week would you change anything with sodium and water throughout a peak week or on show day
0: so i'll just drink normally throughout the early stages of the peak week and then however on show day you don't want to be drinking to the extent where it will distend your stomach or belly or abdominals
1: yeah or like you have to go pee a bunch because you've got tan on your butt and not only will that ruin your tan but it ruins the toilet seat too
0: (laughs) and also you don't want to be drinking too little either because obviously when you're carbohydrate loading then every gram of carbohydrate stores approximately four meals of water so if you're not drinking enough to store those carbohydrates then you'll just look like crap basically
1: Yeah, exactly. And then similar to that half teaspoon salt shot that you can take before a workout, certainly you can take that before you start your pump up and that really helps with vascularity, increasing blood pressure, and just increasing glucose and water into those muscle bellies so that you look super full. And I guess lastly, diuretics.
0: So basically for those that don't know, a diuretic is basically a... Substance that will promote the excretion of urine and I really don't think that they hold a place for natural athletes Competing and that's primarily because if someone looks the part two to three weeks out from the show why introduce a diuretic and potentially add in another variable that can go wrong and Yeah, like we just covered as well, like diuretics promote the excretion of urine and fluid. And for a natural athlete, that's the one thing that's making you look nice and full, and that's helping store those carbohydrates. So, yeah, like you definitely don't want to be hopping on stage having like cutting water or anything like that because your muscle is just going to look flatter. It'll be harder if you get it a pump, it'll be harder for you to store carbohydrates. Yeah, Yeah,
1: you're just going to look like a string bean. So, yeah, and Jack and I will definitely admit we are not experienced with peaking an enhanced athlete. We're fully aware that because of some of the drug protocols that enhanced athletes run, diuretics are commonly used, but we are not experienced in that field, so we're not really confident really saying anything on those terms. All right, so the next question is from Lachlan, and he says... I'm not even a fan of donuts in the off-season. How come I want them during prep? Like, why are donuts the post-comp feeds? Jack?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I guess it's mainly around the social stigma side of things and like the peer, what your peers are doing. And I see everyone, it's just like the typical bodybuilding sort of food.
1: Yeah, it's that celebratory food. I, I think physiologically, it's probably because donuts are highly palatable. You know, they're full of sugar, they're full of fat. And when you are at a low body fat percentage, and you are in a severe energy deficit, your body is craving highly palatable foods because it wants energy. And you've probably, or most people have tasted donuts in their life, and they've been a very enjoyable experience experience <laughs> especially if you've been to donut time. So I think it makes sense that your body it like just wants a food like that. It's the same with if you want like a really creamy alfredo pasta or if you want a super cheesy pizza, something just that you just want to bite your teeth into and go, "Ah, oh, that's good."
0: Mm, yeah, it's and they just look really good as well.
1: Yeah, exactly, especially when they've got like Nutella bursting at the seams. <laughs> Okay, so this next question is from Anne VR, and it says, what would you say to someone who thinks comp prep is like an eating disorder?
0: Yeah, I take this question quite seriously because eating disorders are a serious business, and it's quite an accusation for someone to say that comp prep is like an eating disorder, and I'm assuming they don't really fully understand what an eating disorder is and what it entails, because comp prep is nothing. It's not an eating disorder at all.
1: No, it's just an extreme diet, but it's certainly not an eating disorder. I think there's tendencies of disordered eating. But again, Jack, so we learned about these in our studies, but what are some of the actual eating disorder classifications?
0: So there are three predominant types, and the first is anorexia nervosa, the second is bulimia nervosa, and the third is Binge eating disorder and they all have very specific criteria that you have to actually fit in order to fall into One of those categories otherwise, you're basically categorized as disordered eating where you basically have Unusual tendencies with food, which may not be completely healthy.
1: Yeah, exactly So usually people have disordered eating patterns and then if those become very extreme They do manifest into an actual classified eating disorder but disordered eating patterns i guess could be considered it's almost like setting yourself little specific rules i guess you could almost classify disordered eating as anything that you wouldn't necessarily see in the norm so you know you see people wake up and they don't really care what they have for breakfast they don't really care what time they eat you know also if they go out for f- like for a meal with friends they don't get anxious about that they don't look up the menu beforehand on the internet and try to work it into my fitness Pals. so i just but, little things like that
0: but yeah i would argue myself that in order to have a goal driven approach to anything and have a very healthy diet then you have to have a level of disordered eating in there yeah
1: i know it's it's a really tough call i've certainly always said that if you have specific goals you have to do specific things and certainly if you are involved in the sport of bodybuilding you do have to do very specific things and nutrition is an integral part of bodybuilding you have to pay attention to it all the time so
0: and yeah, the, the final point that I want to make for this as well is compare it to any other competitive sport that involves weight loss, like boxers, they have to go and MMA fighters have to go undergo very specific and drastic weight loss, which prob- to be honest is probably less healthy than um, bodybuilding diets and like swimmers,
1: gymnasts, yeah,
0: gymnasts. Like...
1: Jockeys.
0: mm, Yeah, the list goes on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's not just bodybuilders, guys. And sometimes you'll actually find that... Just because you're prepping your meals and you're hitting your gym sessions and you actually feel really good about yourself, someone else who might, your actions are actually making them feel a little bit insecure about theirs might jump to the accusation of, you have an eating disorder, where it's like, no, it's not, dude. I'm just trying to look after myself and get on a bodybuilding stage. Leave me alone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point as well.
1: Yeah. All right. So which question do you want to answer next?
0: So this next question states, is it common to feel terrible physically, foggy head, nausea and weakness 10 to 12 weeks out?
1: I want to straight say straight up, no, it's, mm. that's not normal. I, I am a bit concerned that you are feeling that way.
0: Yeah, especially the one that stands out for me there is nausea. Like I can understand foggy head and weakness, especially like right towards the end, but There are so many variables that we need to know more of here, like how lean are you? How long have you been dieting for? What's your daily intake of food? What are you eating in that daily intake? Are you male or female?
1: How much sleep are you getting? What's your training like? Just it's so client-centered and it's so individual-specific. So we'd really need to get a heck of a lot of information from you to properly answer that question. But I really hope that whatever is going on right now, it is resolved and you do see an allied health professional. And yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you're feeling like that, which you sh- certainly shouldn't be. Even 12 weeks out, that's that's like three months. You really shouldn't... I, to be honest, this might not even be related to comp prep.
0: Yeah, and just make sure you're getting the adequate assistance necessary for your prep that's worth your time and money as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's so important that you're taken care of.
0: So moving on to the next question. In latter stages of prep, when food is low, what are the benefits of training weight training for your muscles?
1: what are the benefits of weight training Woo-hoo! <laughs> okay well i guess just to make this short and sweet like the reason why you lift weights predominantly is to grow muscle but also maintain your muscle mass and also to maintain your bone mineral density and just for general health but especially in the later stages of prep even though food is low your macronutrients should still certainly be set up to a point where you are consuming sufficient protein. So Jack and I would recommend in an energy deficit somewhere around 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, evenly spread throughout the day. And we know that in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, essentially, you need two things. You need a stimulus from resistance training or And you need a stimulus from consuming adequate proteins. So that's usually a bolus dose of 20 to 40 grams of a high biological value protein source, something with all of your essential amino acids in there, and at least two grams of leucine. So yeah, you just lift weights to maintain your muscle mass in those um, later stages of prep. Cause yep. you don't want to lose that. That's mm. what you're showcasing on stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Weight training is basically the stimulus to keep everything that you've worked so hard for in your off season.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. So next question is from Cara and she has asked, what does a reverse diet and training post comp usually look like?
0: So we have discussed this before. We've done a episode on the reverse recovery diet but we will also discuss it quickly now as well. So essentially the post comp period is to recover, hormonally, physically, mentally, all those things. And usually what we like to do is basically start off with a relatively easy period of training, which can last for however long, depending on the athlete. And so this might be a big deload, or it might just start off with a gradual, very low volume, low intensity period of their first week of training block. And in terms of their nutrition, the guidelines set out at the moment indicate about five to 10% of your stage weight increase in the first four to six weeks after comp. So the example I always give is 100 kilos because it's an easy number. So this could be between five to 10 kilos of increase in the first four to six weeks after your prep.
1: Yeah, exactly. And all, always, that's not all going to be tissue weight. Remember, like from your comp weight, you've usually been depleted. So a lot of that weight is just going to be fluid and filling up your glycogen stores as well. So it's actually a good thing. You're just going to look really full.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it'll basically, the aim of this is just to make you feel better, make you be able to train with intensity again, stop that food focus as much as possible, and just have a different outlook on your training and nutrition that's not 100%. I'm trying to see the scale go down.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, restoring hormonally too, so getting your testosterone levels back up, getting your thyroid levels back up, getting your resting metabolic rate back up to where it should be for your body weight, super duper important for your health in the long run. Yeah.
0: And I think to be honest, this is probably actually mentally harder than the prep itself. And this is where having someone to basically tell you what to do is actually really beneficial because from past experiences, we both know, like actually Tiara was really good at this, but... Thanks. (laughs) I ain't
1: scared of a little extra food.
0: (laughs) But yeah, it can be really tough to see that scale go up and watch that hard work that you've done, all like your striations and veins and your abs go away. So mm-hmm.
1: But it's at at the same time, man, embrace it. Embrace your improvement season because that is the time when you get to grow and you get to get strong and you get to fill out. And sure you don't look compline, but there's a time and a place for looking compline. Like compline looks good, but Damn, does it feel good to be strong and just train like a beast in the gym? It's such a feeling. And to eat all the food, it's it's so good. I, I love it, to be honest. I ain't scared.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> so what's the next question?
1: All right. So this next one is asked by Selena. And she's asked, how do I stop the fear of the unknown or stage anxiety get the better of me? Mm, That's a good question. Mm.
0: So in terms of the unknown, I guess this is a normal feeling for everyone who's doing it for the first time. But something that really helped us and has helped our clients as well is basically watching a show in person. And then you just know how it runs. Like the atmosphere there is amazing. Like everyone is really supportive. Like I literally have not seen a negative anything negative at any of those shows, whether it be from the coaches, athletes.
1: Yeah, there's just such good sportsmanship. It's such an amazing atmosphere.
0: Mm. And yeah, just doing everything you can to be prepared for it, not leaving anything in in the tank, I guess, or for example, like having everything prepared, like your tan, your food for the comp day, your your posing suit and everything and just ready to go.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also if you're nervous for getting on stage for the first time, one, accept that that's totally normal, but also like Jack said, just prepare yourself. So practice your posing all throughout your comp, but also practice it in your improvement season too. you know, really nail it, get confident, get sassy, even you, because you're getting on a stage in a bikini for girls, you know, or guys in little trunks in front of a huge crowd of people. So I think that it's important to, in your comp prep, practice posing in front of other people, because the reality is, in comp prep you're going to be posing in front of a heck of a lot less people than you will on actual comp day so get confident with it you know practice in front of your friends practice in front of your family obviously you'll be practicing in front of your coach something that i really found helpful was i attended you know posing classes with other people and we'd all pose next to each other up on the stage and we would take videos and you just get more of a feel for what it's going to be like and Yeah, I I just say try to prepare yourself, but regardless, you know, your feet might shake a little bit and your knees might wobble a little bit, but damn, it's so fun. And the first time you get off stage, you're just going to want to get straight back up there again. It's it's addictive.
0: Mm. And especially the ICN posing workshops as well. They're really good and especially if they're run by pros and
1: yeah they give such fantastic feedback and especially jason the icn president here in queensland he gives phenomenal feedback so like if you can i remember jack and i competed at the rookie show and then we emailed him some photos and asking for some feedback for what we could improve on for the brisbane classic and he sent us like paragraphs upon paragraphs of feedback it was just it was so helpful it was so kind of him but Yeah, I'd say just try to nail every variable you can, and you got this. Just have fun with it.
0: So the next question is, is it possible to drink too much water during comp prep?
1: Hmm, drink too much water.
0: So drinking too much water can actually result in a phenomenon called hyponatremia, which is basically when... Your electrolytes become diluted. So electrolytes uh, not just sodium, but also like magnesium, potassium, mm-hmm. um, as well, and a few others.
1: Yeah, very rare to be honest. Very rare, but also very, very dangerous too. Mm.
0: So yeah, definitely don't be scared of drinking water. So like, if you're drinking more than four liters of water a day, I'd have to ask you why. Uh, it's probably they're just <laughs> thirsty, man.
1: They're really thirsty. <laughs> it's
0: probably it's not necessary to drink that much water. And I can't give you, because again, depending on too many individual factors, I can't give anyone, I can't give it like a very broad recommendation of how much is too much for you. And yeah, I guess the key thing here is just drinking to thirst. And if you're thirsty, then that's okay to drink. But if you're like going to bed or if you have a massive distended stomach full of water, then... Might not be the best.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you can also always go off the color of your urine as well. So usually um, health professionals recommend that your urine looks like straw. So it's not like completely clear, but it's kind of like got this slightly yellow little tinge to it. But guys, at the same time, the body is so goddamn good at staying at homeostasis, and it's very good at keeping things tightly controlled and regulating fluid balance. So if you drink more water, you will be peeing like a horse because it's just going to be excreting more water, (laughs) in short, pretty much. (laughs) Cool. All right. So this next question says, I'm looking at doing my first comp next year, season A, and would like any tips you may have for finding the right coach and when to approach them. So I guess right now we can just touch on a few qualities that we would see in a good coach.
0: Mm. So the first thing I would look at is basically what has their plus clients achieved and how they how those clients look. So obviously, if every single one of their clients are stepping on stage not lean enough and they can't really pose that well, then that's a sign that I'll probably move on and look for the next coach.
1: Yeah, exactly. Never be scared to talk to other competitors and ask about their experience with that coach because you definitely want to be with a coach who has holds a high reputation for themselves.
0: But then again, that coin is also double-sided. So if a client does really well, but then again, they've been dieted extremely hard, they are eating below 1,000 calories a day, they were doing an hour of cardio a day, and yeah, et cetera, uh, then maybe you should keep an eye out for someone else who can achieve those same results whilst using evidence-based practice and keeping their client healthy as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important that a coach practices what they preach and they walk the talk because, you know, bodybuilding is a very special sport. And I think that, you know, someone should only be in the position to coach if they've gone through the journey themselves too, because it's very difficult to actually empathize with someone when their calories are low and training demands are high and life stresses are high. And, you know, they are going through a hard period of their life and it's very hard to empathize with them if you've never experienced that yourself. So, I think it's so important that a coach has at least gone through one prep themselves too.
0: Mm, Yeah, I agree for sure. So yeah, there are a number of other factors we can look at as well. So you want your coach to be approachable. You want them to respond to you in a timely manner. So you don't want them to like leave you hanging with a question for days. And like probably number one as well for me is you want the client to feel like you're approachable to ask a question you never want there to be a bad question or a wrong question because if the client is in the dark then you're not sure if you're getting a message across adequately and
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so just make sure that line of communication is so clear and I also really value coaches who, if they don't know the answer to something, they'll admit it. You know, there's nothing better than when someone actually admits that they don't know something, but they'll put in the effort to find out. So I think that's super important, staying in your own lane, because... Honestly, let's admit it, no one knows everything. Mm. But following evidence-based practice is incredibly important as well. And keeping, you know, a client's health as the number one priority. Yes, bodybuilders do go to extremes and it is an extreme sport, but that does not give anyone permission to completely disregard health. You can always look after someone's health.
0: Yeah, so if your coaches Or if the coach you're looking at is giving everyone a meal plan of chicken and broccoli and even stripping everyone to the same calories and macros each week uh then and not tailoring it specifically for you at all then yeah, don't even think about it. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. It has to be client specific, it has to be tailored towards you, especially with your training program as well. Like if you tell your coach that, hey, I can't do deadlifts because I have, I've suffered from a lower back injury, but they give you a cookie cutter plan and it has deadlifts in it twice a week or something, you have to be like, did you even listen to me? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And also another thing is that Always treating the plan as dynamic. And I think it's super important that a coach is always asking one, how do you feel about this? You know, how are you going with the training program? How do you feel if we make these adjustments these week? Not just, you know, setting numbers and just not providing any justification at all. I think there constantly needs to be communication. I think there constantly needs to be support too.
0: And in terms of when to communicate, sorry, get in contact with your coach, I would optimally say at least a year out. And that's just to work through an off season together and establish all those variables, such as your diet training, build up those calories, put on a decent foundation of muscle, which arguably you can't do that in only just like a year or six months but yeah
1: exactly the further you start out the better and the better Mm. your coach will know your body and the better relationship you'll have with your coach too
0: but yeah the minimum i would say is probably 25 weeks out to get in contact with them and yeah just that's if you want to go straight into a competition prep really
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so i think that we've covered that one pretty well so this next question says I'm a 42-year-old female, but I've always wanted to compete, but I'm too shy. Am I too old? So I think first off, we can say, hell no. Oh my gosh, some of the most impressive physiques up on stage are, are the people who are over 40 years old. Not only guys, because like we talked about before, you know, that muscle maturity, but Jesus, some of the women, their bodies are just phenomenal. Like the figure women, they are so beautiful. And in the master's class and women who are well over 50 years old, they do not look over 50 years old. They Mm. look amazing. I'd say you're never too, well, well, we have to set a limit on it somewhere. I I might be that 90-year-old grandma, you know, getting up on a stage. But no, I generally say you are never too old to compete. And she also said she feels a bit shy. And I guess we touched on that earlier before with the question on how you can, you know, combat those nerves about getting on stage. So there's no reason to be shy. Just, you know, practice, 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 build up the confidence and just have fun.
0: Mm, I agree completely. And especially with the atmosphere at those shows, everyone is just so supportive. So and moving on to the next question. So the question states... Sitting at 10% body fat on skin folds, but belly fat is really high. Any tips? Hmm. So with this one, first of all, I wouldn't be using your skin folds as a measure of getting a body fat percentage. And the reason this is, is because it's basically the formula they use to determine the body fat percentage is based off some very, very generic numbers and very generic individuals as well. I think it literally was determined by five individuals, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, assuming you're using the same this the ISAC method of determining body fat percent, but assuming that you do have a higher uh, belly fat body fat compared to your other areas like your thighs, your iliac crest, your bicep, tricep, etc. First of all, it's very normal to have high more belly fat there just because. That's the human ev- human evolution.
1: Yeah, exactly. Evolutionarily, you know, it, when food was scarce and then when we got to eat, we would predominantly put on weight across our stomachs because that's where our most vital organs are and that's where your spinal cord is as well. So, super important things for survival. So, naturally, we will generally deposit more fat tissue around our abdomen.
0: Mm, and... I would need to know some more specific information for you, but also if you have undergone some rapid weight gain, then it is quite normal as well for a larger proportion of that to be deposited around your like central adiposity, which is around your midsection. So yeah, like maybe think about if you have gained quite a bit of weight in a short period of time.
1: And genetically, you know, I'm I'm with you, man. Like genetically, some of us or generally a lot of people just deposit more weight around their hips and it sucks. I know that my legs stay pretty damn skinny. My arms stay pretty skinny, but I generally gain a lot of weight around my hips and a lot of people do. And, you know, it's just, it's just reality. It kind of stinks, but it's just what you got to put up with.
0: Mm. And yeah, I experienced it as well. So yeah, my I gain weight first on my midsection and my my bicep skin folds are still like two mil. So. Yeah,
1: jeez. <laughs> okay, so last question for today. This is from Corinne and she's asked, have either of you ever thought of competing in a different federation? So I guess first off, the only federation Jack and I have actually competed with is ICN. And I know for sure that we are certainly looking into competing with new federations in the future. Myself, my goal has always been to compete with the IFBB in the bikini category. So that's my goal for next year to compete in IFBB. Uh, But I also want to give AWNBS a shot because I think they are a wonderful federation and they cross over into the WNBF as well. But I would love to give every federation a shot really like NBA, ANB, heck, maybe even one day if I can like gain enough weight on my legs, maybe WBFF. That would be a pretty damn cool experience. What about you? Which federations have you thought of?
0: Uh, So yeah, definitely ICN again and uh, ANB, NBA, and I would really love to do WNBF. But I guess the issue, I actually. Recently, found out that the WMBF Season A show got cancelled because not enough people turned up to it. So, damn. Mm, so, but I would like to do that in twenty twenty one if if there's enough people.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely imagining it will grow in future seasons and future years because it is a huge federation in other countries.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So yeah, sweet. All right. So I guess we will finish on our last question of the day. And that is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, you're going first today.
0: So this is actually something I learned a few weeks ago, but I actually kept forgetting each week until today. So I was actually surprised at this information, but it was around like the largest muscle group in your upper body. And I guess usually people would think, oh, it's, it's the lats or it might be the chest, but, uh, the, it was actually the deltoids and this was done under like an anatomical, uh, observation. And I I think they averaged all the results. And so, yeah, it was your deltoids and it, it probably definitely did incorporate the rear delts, side delts and front delts as well. So it is an interesting thing to think about.
1: Yeah, I guess when you think about the cross sectional area of that muscle group? Like if you were to cut it off someone and lay it out flat, it would be pretty damn big.
0: Mm. And yeah, I guess it's an interesting thing to tie into your training and how you look at your physique as well and how proportionate your shoulders are and how much more potential for growth that they have. So
1: Mm, yeah, that is super interesting. Alright, so one thing that I learned this week, this is pretty quick, so Mass just released their new articles on the 1st of June, super exciting, but they just released an article talking about ways that you can be, use your rest breaks at the gym more efficiently because if we're honest, you know, most of our time spent in a gym is resting and sitting down than actually doing sets. It takes a hell of a lot longer to recover generally than it actually takes to lift the weights. But some po- um, I learned a really important point is that one of the worst things you can do between sets is to foam roll. So, Oh my gosh, Um, so essentially what they've shown is that if you foam roll either an agonist muscle or an antagonist muscle, so an agonist muscle is the prime muscle group moving during an exercise, and an antagonist muscle is the opposing muscle group. So let's say you were doing leg extension, your agonist muscle would be your quadriceps, and then your antagonist muscle would be your hamstrings. But what they've shown is that in between sets let's say you were doing leg extension you were to either foam roll your quads or your hamstrings you will actually have less force production and you will complete less reps in the following sets so one of the worst things you can do between sets and during your rest breaks is to actually foam roll so and they quoted various studies there's more than just one there So I highly advise people don't foam roll between your sets (laughs) and yeah, I can even say this anecdotally too, because sometimes when I've been warming up, like for example, I might do a few squats with just the bar and then I might hop under a foam roller and then I might do a few more squats. I actually notice that I almost feel weaker and my lower back almost feels more tender. So if you do foam roll, Keep it to the very beginning of your workout or to the very end. Definitely don't do it at any time in between. All right. So that is the end of our 24th episode. Thank you guys so much for listening again. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we'll catch you next week for episode
0: 25. See you next week.